sifter.com.au. G'day and welcome to Drop Rate by Sifter. Drop Rate is Sifter's review podcast packed with thoughts and feelings about the newest video games. I'm Chris Button, and today there are a lot of feelings, in fact, as we recap some of the best and our favourite games of 2023. The whole Sifter crew is here. Welcome one and all, starting with Adam Christou. Hey, hey. Courtney Barrett. Howdy. Mitch Lowe. Thanks for having me. I'm Fiona Bartholomeus. Hello. Kyle Poletto. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And, of course, our executive producer, Gianni Di Giovanni. Hello. Very excited to talk about all the games we played this year. There is a lot to discuss as we catch up on the games that made our respective years. But first... Let's find out what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni De Giovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying... Sorry, you're mad. Solo developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Sit down for a chat with your pals in video games. You're listening to Sifter. Now, one of the pleasant surprises from 2023 was Hi-Fi Rush from Tango Gameworks and published by Bethesda. It caught a lot of us by surprise due to its shadow drop nature, but immediately caught our attention with its flashy visuals, excellent soundtrack, and compelling rhythm-based gameplay. Mitch, for people who may, who may not be familiar, what's your role with the Sifter team and why is Hi-Fi Rush your game of the year? Thanks, Chris. Um, so, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Mitch. Um, you may recognize most of my work by uh, listening to any of the walkthroughs recently posted. I edit most of those. Um, I also contribute uh, to uh, a lot of the planning of a lot of episodes and mainly mostly behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, I did do a lot of our streaming back in the day, and I was one of the founding members of Sifter. Uh, so Hi-Fi Rush, wow. As you mentioned, the art style is what drew me in, really. I really like the uh, the shells, the, the cell-shaded look. Um, that really draws me in. Things like, uh, things like that are really my favorite. I really like anime, that kind of stuff. So that really was one of the things that got me. Um, something about my gaming taste is i actually don't really like rhythm games or fighting games which is uh something that i didn't even realize it was until you know i actually started playing it i thought i thought it was i thought it was more rpg like uh when i first saw it um and uh this got me into both rhythm and fighting games which is amazing um but because of that because of my inexperience in both these genres i didn't actually get it until about 80 percent through the game um, there will be spoilers because the game is almost a year old at this point, but there's a, there's a part where like the prodigies invaders must die song plays and you have to, um, that really, at that moment was when I really got it. Um, I guess for the, 
for those of you who haven't played it, it's um you kind of have to time your moves along with the beat of the music, which is something that I wasn't really useful and I really didn't get at first. Um, one of my favorite aspects is uh, the extremely likable characters. I think um, 808, the sidekick cat character, which is also your mobile phone and your source of information. People talk to you through them. Um, really liked really liked that character. Um, Peppermint's awesome. I think she has a great design. She's fantastic to look at. Um, it's an incredibly funny game, isn't it, Mitch? Oh, it's really funny. Yeah, I think I think the the visual humor is very good. Um, there are these little like stings that happen every time, like a like kind of you have a break in the combat, and there's like a little. Each one is different, and you and you've always really excited to see a new one. I don't know if that's the right word for it. It's kind of like a little like small micro cutscene in between battle phases of a boss battle. Like if you go to like when the it's usually right before the extra health bar appears uh, when you think you've just beat them, and um, yeah, that that. It's, it's it's accompanied by a small little uh little sting where like 808 and chai the main character chai will like interact with each other or like they'll do air guitar or something like that uh, or they'll the, the character themselves will get distracted from what you're meant to be doing um which is I, I love little things like that it really brings personality and life into the game um it's it's sort of similar to i guess like little ad libs almost it feels like the characters are ad-libbing the whole time which is fantastic. I really like that. Mitch, you said that you're not, uh, you know, super into rhythm games usually. Um, and I played a little bit of this. And one of the biggest draws for me, I wonder if it's the same for you, is just having that those licensed songs in there. Was that much of a help to to push you along? I think one of uh, one of the pivotal moments was a licensed song, the Invaders Must Die moment. And um, yeah, that was really, I really got it at that point. So yeah, I think the licensed music really helped. But that being said, if you're a streamer, there is a streamer mode, and the original soundtrack is very good as well. It 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 accompanies the licensed stuff perfectly. Um, it's very similar to those Guardians of the Galaxy movies, where like those soundtracks are existing soundtracks and licensed music, but they feel like they were made for the media that they've been put in, and the original music definitely accompanies it. Would recommend. This was one of my honourable mentions for Games of the Year, specifically because Tango Gameworks, who I've actually played a few of their other games before, are normally like a horror, very spooky, uh, like Japanese development studio. And this really kind of came out of nowhere. I don't think, um, you know, it may have dropped off everyone's radar because it, there was an Xbox event and it was out and it was on Game Pass and immediately it was available. And I think this is one of the things that was super duper surprising about it because, uh, you know, there was no no lead up at all. No one knew about this game before it was available. And then everyone kind of jumped in at the same time. And it really reminded me of that moment when like during the pandemic, everyone was playing Animal Crossing all at the same time. And everyone was kind of all playing this game at the same time as well in a really cool way. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved it. It's just like incredibly fun combat. Um, it's... Uh, some of those moments with the music comes in exactly like you was saying with um, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's these incredible, very exciting moments that come perfectly with the song. That Invaders Must Die section is incredible. And there's actually a really good section not that long after that where you're firing a huge cannon and a bunch of other bits and pieces, or maybe it's just beforehand. Um, and that's really, really good as well. Um, it, it's just great. It's really fun. It's short. Um, the characters are all super duper likable. Um, there's a nice cast of characters. 
and uh, yeah, just incredibly funny game. So um, if you're looking for something to spend a weekend on or, or have a bunch of people over at your house to play through, like I would highly recommend Hi-Fi Rush. Definitely waiting for a number two. We'll take a number two any day. Um, if we could play as Peppermint, that would be amazing. I see a lot of people on, on social media being like, hey, in the second one, can we be Peppermint for at least a little bit? And there is a, there is a short section at the end of the game where you get to play as 808 the cat briefly brilliant more of that need a bit more of that mitch i know you've got uh, an honorable mention which is uh, a bit different to hi-fi rush uh, would you like to share what your honorable mention is so um in apologies in advance to this game it was my game of the year before i remembered that hi-fi rush came out this year um it came out really early in this year um but my honorable mention is lego 2k drive it is the lego kart racer um, which is essentially just a Lego vehicle building game with a very... Uh, the kart racer itself does nothing new. It's weapons, you hit them, you can shoot each other and whatever. Um, but the vehicle building is everything I've wanted out of a Lego game for a while now. It's essentially Forza Horizon with um, a Lego building vehicle thing, which you can build pretty much anything you want. The box has you driving around in a giant chicken. Um, I chose to use the Ocean Gate submarine as uh, my vehicle of choice, um, which will, which has very well cemented my place in hell. Um, and I will sit in that place very nicely. It'll be comfortable. Um, the vehicles themselves, um, they, uh, they essentially automatically morph from off-road mode, from road mode to... Um, I believe there is a also there is a water mode, like a boat mode, and the vehicle will automatically morph depending on which environment you hit, um, which so you don't need to worry about that. Um, in a special level of comedy, I made my Ocean Gate sub my off-road mode. So um, it, when I'm nowhere near water, the Ocean Gate sub is rolling around with big truck tires, um, which is great. And um, yeah, my I made my actual car in the road mode. So um, fantastic, very fun game. It's sending me to hell. Well, thanks for that, Mitch. Uh, who would have thought LEGO 2K Drive to be such a vehicle, no pun intended, for uh, such gallows humour? Join the Sifter community on Discord at sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. One of the biggest releases for 2023 was The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, the, the highly anticipated sequel to Breath of the Wild. One of the big questions heading into Tears of the Kingdom was that would the sequel hold up to the original? And it turns out that according to you, Fiona and Kyle, uh, the answer is a resounding yes. For those who may not be, be familiar with, with some of your work, Kyle, uh, what's your role with the Sifter team and why is Tears of the Kingdom your Game of the Year pick? Uh, yeah, that's right, Chris. People uh, who have been following us for a while probably would know me from uh, hosting Walkthrough with Fiona is the regular lineup. But the last month I have had uh, had some time off and uh, the amazing Courtney has been stepped in, has stepped in for me. So thanks so much, Courtney. Do it, been doing a fantastic job. Fiona, could I please get you to introduce your role in, in the Sifter team and what your game of the year for 2023 is? Yeah, so I co-host Walkthrough alongside Kyle and now also Courtney. It's great to have Courtney on the team as well. Um, I also did used to do some live streaming with Gianni and Mitch back in the day a little while ago, played lots of fun games. So I've been around doing bits and pieces, but my game of the year is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. 
it's a, a sequel that I feel just really went above and beyond when it really didn't have to. I think people were so amped after Breath of the Wild that they could have released Breath of the Wild 2, essentially changing not much, just more of the same. And it probably still would have been close to the top of my list, but it just did everything you want a sequel to do. It, it offered up more of an experience that I loved in the, in the first one and then built on it, but in just in ways I couldn't have imagined and on a scale that, that really shocked me. Um, and before even getting into the actual game, I think one of the best parts about this release as a whole is something Nintendo has been, uh, particularly with the Zelda series lately, has gotten really good at, and that's not giving too much away in the lead up. Um, Tears of the Kingdom had enough hype behind it that really they, they could have just released nothing. Uh, they could have hi-fi rushed it and it probably would have still sold an incredible amount. But showing restraint that they did with how much they let uh, you know let slip about this just made that, uh, that amazing joy I got from the discovery part of playing Breath of the Wild feel brand new again, despite it being in the exact same setting uh, with some slight changes. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we even knew about the depths before pre-release. Uh, and that's, it was huge. A, an entire another map, essentially, that they did not even mention. I think just, yeah, the discovery was my favorite part of Breath of the Wild. And to be able to do that again whilst recycling the map, uh, I think was just, an, an incredible achievement. Fiona? I absolutely agree with everything you said. Going into this, I just expected, oh, it'll be the same map. They've got everything all there. The foundations are there, which just have a slightly different story. But then the game starts and that whole first cut scene kicks off and then you're in the sky. You're like, okay, cool. We've got a sky level. We kind of knew something like that would be coming. And then you were saying the depths. You fall down one of those abyss for the first time and you land there. You're like, oh, this is not what I was expecting at and all. And those horns Just hit the, as you fall as you fall for the first time. You get that boom. Oh, yes. Oh, what a feeling. Yeah. So good. And the first time you jump off one of the islands, you just get to glide and fly. Like this, Just the scale of this game is something that I was absolutely not expecting. And like you were saying, Nintendo didn't give anything away. They could have just done a very small short story in breath of breath of the wild and i would have been happy but this was incredible and then building on the characters we already knew with the new champions from the last game giving them a purpose and building on their stories their towns and their people i just had so much fun with this and the new powers as well yeah absolutely i, I thought they they built on everything so well it wasn't just the addition of the of the extra levels of the sky and and of their depths but uh, even the variety of enemies and just things to do. I, I did find myself towards the end of Breath of the Wild feeling a little bit, it, feeling a little bit empty, maybe a little bit repetitive. But I've I've been playing this game consistently all year and just continue to find kind of new interesting, you know, bosses, little storylines. Uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. And Gianni, I know you've played a fair chunk of Tears of the Kingdom as well. I imagine a lot of this aligns with your experience as well. Yeah, I like 250 hours of Tears of the Kingdom. Um, what I spent a lot of time doing, and I'm really curious um, if you two played like this as well, is I just spent ages building incredible machines because that's one aspect of it that, you know, really is a huge departure from Breath of the Wild. Much of it 
you know, even the exploring of the different areas and going through these things, like the, the, the foundation of that is in Breath of the Wild. But being able to connect and build things together and, you know, manipulate the way that you move through the environment. There's new powers where you can just like slurp through <laughs> through rocks or whatever it ends up being, you know, like, did you do much of that? Did you spend a lot of time building flying machines and other bits and pieces as you were traveling the world? I, I would often forget about the building aspect and then remember it. Me and go, too. Oh, God, is it, that's right. There's this essentially whole other game here for me to, to play around with. And, uh, you know, some people have said they missed some of the old abilities, but they did a really good job of, of getting rid of those abilities and replacing it uh, with ones that were, were more enjoyable and, uh, I guess, um, just more applicable based on the, the world that they build to, to play it in. And like you said, the one where you just go up through the roof seems pretty basic, but it ended up being one of my favorite tools to use. Oh, uh, just so much every fun. time you remember it and you go, oh, that's right, I can just do that. It was, it was, a, it was a joy, right? I must admit, doing like the, um, essentially the, the shrines, they'll be like, yeah, you, you're supposed to do this really complicated thing to get to the exit and leave. Sometimes I'll just build a bridge and just bypass the whole thing. I'm like, no, I don't feel like that. I'll just build something instead. And Adam, I know you are also someone who, who dabbled with Tears of the Kingdom. What are your thoughts? Oh, look, I'm still playing it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I haven't finished it yet. And I'm, I've got over 100 hours in the thing. And I'm slowly working my way towards the end now. But wanted to touch on something Fiona just said, but also what Kyle said a bit before. First with like puzzle breaking. Um, the sense of reward in solving something in a way that you're not meant to solve it in this game feels so gratifying and so good. Um, there was one particular puzzle that I did yesterday where you're in this giant circular sphere and there is like a small version of it in the middle of the sphere and you can grab that and move it around, which creates like, allows you to rotate the sphere that you're inside so that you can line up a hole so that you can find a way to catapult out a crystal uh, out onto another floating island so that you can turn it into a shrine. Um, and I realized that, yes, I could do that, but I could also just line up the hole and then use my uh, ultra hand ability to pick up the crystal and move it as far over to where it needed to go as possible, then bring it back, then go over to the other side, rewind time on the crystal and grab it from midair and pull it over without doing the entire puzzle that just made me feel extremely smart but also terrible at the same time and it's it's such a wonderful thing and i think it really ties into the the overall goal of this game which is discovery and outside of discovery of like what is an interesting landmark on the horizon but discovery of like broadening um your own knowledge and of like what are the tools that i have to play with like ascend as we've talked already is the power that allows you to jump up into the sky and go through a ceiling above you but you can ascend through the giant stone golem talus monsters that you fight so that you can pop on top of their heads and hit their weak spot uh you can use ascend to break so many puzzles and platforming problems in this game you can use a combination of rewinding time and ultra hand to create elevators that you and platforms that go up and down so that you can reach areas and then the building mechanics all come into this into the fore as well and it's sort of like the toolbox of discovery of what I can achieve with what's being given to me feels just as palpable as the discovery of what is over the hill. And I think this is the first time that a Zelda game has managed to marry the sense of discovery of like its toolkit 
and its box of toys that you can play with, with the world that is intoxicating to go through as well. And I haven't thought of many games that have had this sort of like uh, toolbox approach or sandbox approach to like what you can do in their environment feel like the environmental discovery is as good as the tools and working out how you can break everything in the game. And that I think is a huge achievement. And Mitch, did you also happen to recreate the uh, the Ocean Gate submarine in Tears of the Kingdom as well? <laughs> yes, I saw it in, on Twitter and I was about to mention it. But I, I really do like the ability. There is no length that a Zelda Breath of the Wild player will not go to brute force a solution, which, is, which I, I love. And um, I, I don't know. I just wanted to, speaking of building things in that game, what was everybody's favorite thing that you saw on Twitter or like built? Because I saw like the scorpion tank from Halo in Breath of the Wild and somebody used an ability to not really use it to defeat an enemy, but throw it at an enemy and eliminate it that way. And I thought that was really good. Oh, did, any, any great creations that anybody else saw on the internet or that you did? I saw a good one. I, I'm not that good with creating things besides like attaching crystals to the gliders and shooting it off because I'm too tired to carry them myself. But I saw great ones where people would basically make a metal box with either lasers or fires and then drop the enemies in it or put it on top of the enemies and just completely roast them or doing it to all the Koroks and unfortunately crucifying them on a rock or throwing them in off a cliff and stuff like that. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> yeah, well, it essentially turned out be, to be like a really elaborate, brutal saw traps, essentially, that people made using lasers or spike walls, things like that were, were fantastic. Courtney, I, I know you didn't play Tears of the Kingdom as such, but I, I know you are a uh, an enjoyer of memes uh, like myself. <laughs> uh, what, what was some of the the things you saw of uh, Tears of the Kingdom? Um, there is one video that I still continue to like watch. I have it saved on Twitter that I just go back and watch sometimes. It's of Link uh, like falling on his stomach and it zooms in on his crotch and he just has these massive <laughs> testicles, like huge balls. <laughs> And they're just I think I like, know what you're talking about. Oh my! They're just like <laughs> bouncing around. It's like he's got tits between his legs, and it's just the best. It brings me so much joy. Hang on, wait a minute. I got to see this now. Yeah, I'm also gonna see. I've played over a hundred hours of this game, and yeah. I've not once seen. Uh, it's so good. Links. Apparently. The explanation is it's not Link doesn't have huge balls, unfortunately. Um, instead, Ooh, it's the rendering of um, like his stomach apparently makes it look like he's got huge bouncy balls. So, computer, show me Link's stomach. <laughs> <laughs> You can find that one yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. Show um, me Link's big balls. I, I, I Googled Link's huge bouncy balls. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to give shout outs to the person who made the giant Burning Man type uh, automaton with a huge flaming penis that went viral in the first week of the game. Uh, but also shouts to the person who figured out how to like position two fans and a steering control thing together to make the hover cycle which i oh. think almost everyone ever used in this game what it went viral on everything and i think we what a dream just started for using the depths yeah just stuff a light seed on that thing yeah fantastic and uh 
before we move on to the next game, I think uh, we can probably all agree that the story was, I mean, for me, it was probably the first really interesting, engaging Zelda story um, that, that I've played through. Uh, and it, it didn't just, it wasn't just the, the story, but the characters and how they were written. And f- for me, one of the really important parts was, um, was the villain, was, was Ganondorf, who, uh, you know, in Breath of the Wild, I found him to be a little bit goofy. Um, but in Tears of the Kingdom, he, he felt like a formidable enemy with a real kind of genuine evil about him and probably felt like that for the first time since uh, I saw him in Ocarina of Time as a kid. Um, yeah, certainly. It, a, a much more fleshed out character than perhaps what, what he's been in you know previous Zelda entries and uh, a rather strong performance as well from uh, the one and only Matthew Mercer, which certainly helps. Oh, question. Who who played this uh, in English? I did. That would be me. Okay. Did you play it in Japanese? I did, yeah. I wasn't going to sit oh. through uh, that, that some certain performances. I don't want to necessarily throw anybody. Oh, look, we know who you're talking about. Get bus. face, Matthew Mercer. But, um, no, no, Matthew Mercer was, was fine. <laughs> Matthew Mercer was fine, specifically. Uh, but there were some performances that I uh, I, I didn't uh, didn't particularly enjoy in breath of the wild and then i thought going into this i'm just going to go straight for japanese and i really really enjoyed it so what you're saying is uh zelda's brekkie ketamine kind of k-hole tunnel is not for you <laughs> not uh, not for me not for another hundred hours can you it'd be good if you could like select particular voices you wanted in japanese that'd be really funny that would Switch be super them. accessibility options right there i love this game so much like adam i'm still slowly getting through it i've done a bit but we'll see how long it takes to finish it but one thing i do have to say as much as i like and love the new powers Toolin sometimes just made me want to just kick him off my team because i would go to pick up an item and he would just come out of nowhere there we go that item's now off an island and i can't get that anymore i love him but he needs to stop sometimes with his wind absolutely blowing with his wind blowing power <laughs> absolutely indeed and Fiona, sticking with you for a moment, I know one of your honourable mentions for 2023, and we spoke about this on a recent episode of Drop Rate, was Marvel's Spider-Man 2, uh, which another very good AAA game from, from this year. What was it that you enjoyed about Spider-Man 2? I loved this game. Like The story for both Peter and Miles were both really, really interesting, but I just liked the fact that you could play them both together but they were still very different in terms of their stories, but also their powers and skill sets. I must admit, I probably did spend a little bit more time with Miles until Peter got Venom, but it was such a fun game and being able to swing through the city and then have it expanded and being able to fly, I was just went above and beyond what I was expecting. It was so much fun. Kyle, I know you also had an honourable mention of your own, uh, a game that so I did see a few people talking about uh, as well, a game called Cocoon. Could you please tell me about your time with that game? Yeah, it's it been getting a lot of hype recently, particularly at the, the Game Awards uh, this past week, and it's kind of the opposite of, of Tears of the Kingdom. It's quite, you know, uh, quaint, um, much smaller scale. You you basically have one button uh, aside from the direction stick to to do things. And it's just a, a really really zen puzzler that uh, I just absolutely fell in love with. The art does the art style, uh, the sound design, everything about it was just uh, 
completely mesmerizing to me. Uh, the second I, I booted it up through through a, a random recommendation, um, before it started, you know, really, really the the hype train rolling. Um, uh, and I thought, well, what is this? This seems like just a little indie thing. Oh, okay, it's by one of the guys from Inside and and Limbo, so I'll, I'll definitely check it out. And it, it did not disappoint. Um, super meditative and really, really sweet uh, game. Um, definitely worth checking out. Uh, anyone who's into that kind of Zen puzzler style game. You're listening to Drop Rate by Sifter. Visit us on sifter.com.au. Now, moving on to Adam Christou, uh, you've joined me on a few drop rates this year, but uh, I'd love for you to share uh, your role within the Sifter team and what your game for 2023 is. Yeah, hi. Um, I guess I do reviews. I I play a lot of games. I, I do the occasional bit of light map as well, so I'll interview guests and stuff too. Uh, but for the most part, I, I play the really long-winded RPGs and write reviews about them on our website and go why did i pick another 60 hour game to review what am i doing to myself why do i hate me um that's that's a bit of me in a nutshell fantastic and your game of 2023 recently won a very big award um so please tell me all about it yeah i i picked Baldur's gate 3 from developers larian studios um and you know it, it feels like I thought this was going to be the the end of the year game of the year for me. I can't I can't describe it any other way than once I played it. I think the monumental scope of the game, uh, its density and the amount of work that went behind it was just sort of undeniable. And it felt like one of those sort of watershed games, sort of similar to Tears of Kingdom, which I think is so close to being like equally game of the year for me, where there is just so much going on in this game, so much work that's been put into it. Um, and you can also feel like the reverberations of what this game has achieved are going to go on to kind of reshape how people think about what games could be over the next decade. Sort of reminds me a bit similar to um, when Breath of the Wild first came out or when The Witcher 3 came out, and suddenly we had a huge shift in how games were being designed, and then we got a lot of Breath of the Wild clones, or the entire Assassin's Creed franchise morphed into something that felt like very influenced by The Witcher 3 and became more of an RPG. So I'm sort of wondering, like, what are the reverberations of Baldur's Gate 3 as a monumental achievement in games? But also, it's a really good game as well, and I think that's why it's my pick too. Um, I'm fascinated by a game that manages to cultivate a huge fandom and fan base, and I think this is one of those games that has really cut through this year and become like the fan favorite for a lot of people um being at pax this year there were so many shadow hearts so many lazels and asterians walking around um you know these are characters that i think will live on in the memory of video game characters as some of the greats for the next decade or so i think uh the way that this game approaches um the genre of crpg which is you know kind of a bit of a a neckbeardy dorky video game genre <laughs> it's one of my favorites but it is what it is um you know and and making it a bit more streamlined and approachable for lots of people to dive into partly because it is a collaboration with dungeons and dragons 5e which is extremely popular but also accessible um i think worked quite well for it uh and you know i think this is one of those rare crpgs it feels like there is real room for actually role-playing 
Um, you know, I play a lot of RPGs and I find that character dialogue options and choices and it's writing pigeonhole you into sort of various expectations of what your character is going to kind of evolve and become. Like even some of the best games like uh, Pillars of Eternity um, or Pathfinder, um, Wrath of the Righteous, feel like sometimes the dialogue choices that you're selecting feel like you're making a compromise between the writer and who you're actually envisioning yourself inhabiting. And Baldur's Gate 3 felt like one of the first RPGs where there was such a varied amount of dialogue options, such an amount of of ability to craft and create my character through those selections that I felt like I was actually kind of co-authoring a character in this world that felt like my character and not like a compromise with the script that I was playing. And that is such a rare thing to achieve. Um, and then you think about the reactivity of decisions and conversations and consequences in this game that make the game feel like it really is a DM that is improving with you at the table and responding to your choices and working as fast as it can to kind of like uh, accommodate them for you, which I think is such a hard thing to do in a video game to kind of be like, okay, we've offered this thing. Now we have to think of all the different ways that you're going to use it and be able to offer it to you and make it work and feel good. I think, for example, the the spell where you can talk to the dead is a really good version of that. It's like literally you can cast it on a corpse and if the corpse has something to say, you can have a conversation with that. And a fully voice acted, mo-capped game, that is a scary thing to think about and they manage to pull it off and make it feel good. And that is that is wild to me. Um you know, I can also rant for hours about the characters in this game. I think they are going to be like remembered for a very long time. I, I am not going to be forgetting Astarian, the shitty vampire, bisexual nightmare, anytime soon. Uh, I think he's one of the most fascinating video game characters in a long time and just a complete piece of shit that you have to have in your party. Because why wouldn't you want to have like that nightmare person with you um all these npcs as well can be played as your main character and the narrative and the writing in this game actually shifts and twists to accommodate that which is wild to me i played maybe 10 hours of the game early on as a starian to get a feel for like how they would shift that and seeing like entire new lines of narration come through lots of different dialogue options and different sort of tense moments in the early game of like starian is a vampire he hasn't told anyone he is and he has to work out who he trusts enough to tell uh, that he's a vampire in case they stake him. It's a very different sort of experience to have in this game compared to just playing your own character that doesn't have that tension. And that is brought across all the NPCs in the game who all at various points feel like they are the main protagonist of the story that you're going through, which is not a thing that a lot of games manage to achieve. And, you know, part of that is because they're designed to be played with as them as well. But also when your NPCs have such stake and roles to play in the narrative, it makes their inclusion in the story feel really valuable and memorable as well. And Courtney, could you share a little bit about your experience with Baldur's Gate 3 as well? Um, so I actually didn't play Baldur's Gate 3, but I had a friend group full of people that did and all of my experience like with the game was kind of vicariously through them and it was really funny. And Adam, I just want to know, who did you romance <laughs> Oh, who did I romance? So I have I have two characters. <laughs> how, long do, how long do you have, Courtney? Yeah, I how guess long it do is you have? a great um, question. So Adam's gonna I have this. been playing two 
like campaigns of Baldur's Gate 3. The one that I finished was with my goody goody ranger, um, who was a ranger knight and fell in love with Will and did the old trad fantasy romance. Will is very, you know, like he's he's a handsome debonair hero he wants to dance with you he wants to wait till marriage i made a huge mistake uh when i played my orc character who was a vengeance paladin that was also uh you, you know uh i was playing the sort of uh the dark urge background which kind of makes him have serial killer thoughts that he doesn't want um i decided to romance hysterian and was not disappointed uh so yeah there's there's, there's a lot of great options here for for people that want to do romance in video games there's sex scenes they're silly they're fun an intimacy coordinator was hired for them so they actually feel quite good and not gross and weird like a lot of other games yes i'm saying that about the game that marketed itself with the bear sex scene but what can you say um i i, I just feel like this game and its interactions with those characters even if you're not romancing them um, they are such wonderful companions to have along with you that you feel like you feel sad when this game's runtime comes to an end. You don't want to leave the the adventure like on an end. It's like, please keep going forever game. This game sets the bar for horniness at a, at a level unmatched by anything else for a really long time. And I think it'll be really interesting, as you said, you know, when it's one of these games where so much of this they could pick one part of Baldur's Gate 3 and make a Baldur's Gate 3-like bout. But out of any many different aspects of that, I'd be really curious to see, you know, the split in the, the road where before Baldur's Gate 3 happened and then now afterwards. It'd be really curious to see, like in a couple of years' time, where, where the games industry goes, especially because it has been, one, so critically loved and two, so loved by players all around the world who can literally create whatever they want to do. So, you know... I often think about games of the years as ones that where there's a time before and then there's a time afterwards. And I reckon Baldur's Gate 3 is going to be one of those. And do you think that, uh, and John as well, as part of that, what we see moving forward uh, is going to be that leaning into the uh, stripped down mechanics of D and 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 a role playing. You know, we've had just decades now of RPGs, particularly fantasy RPGs, trying to hide those um uh you know those essentially hide those dice rolls behind uh some kind of other mechanic and, and make it all in the background whereas uh correct if i'm wrong boulders gate just puts that straight up and is is honest about it. do you think that's something we'll see going forward yeah i think that's what worked for this game a lot and i think it also worked really well for disco elysium which did a similar thing with its like speech checks and dialogue checks in that game where you could see what was happening and a lot of the fun of boulders gate is like going all right i'm gonna i'm gonna go up to that guard in town and i'm gonna intimidate them and then you press it and you realize you have to get a 25 and intimidate and your character sucks <laughs> and knowing that you've just made a huge mistake but you're hoping for a magical role that will get you there and i think that's very similar to tabletop right that's the fun intention of role playing in the moment in tabletop games that they've managed to translate really well and i th i think what's gone really well here as well is i i think a lot about tears of the kingdom when i play this game when we talked a bit before about the discovery and the joy of having a toolbox of things and what you can achieve with that toolbox and how you can break the game and this is something that larian's been doing for years most famously with divinity original sin 2 where a speed run of that rpg involved stacking as much heavy objects in a chest as you could then using telekinesis to drop the chest on enemies for massive amounts of damage killing them in one hit and Baldur's gate 3 allows that sort of level of like 
puzzle breaking and problem solving in an environmental sense as well. Got a really hard boss that you don't like? Is there a cliff nearby that you can punt them off? Try and give it a shot. It might be really hard to do, but if you pull it off, great. Um, maybe you want to stealth into the enemy base and just start dropping explosive barrels everywhere and then set them all off in a chain reaction. I saw a wonderful video on on Twitter the other day where someone set up a globe of invulnerability spell, put their whole party in it, and it filled like one of the hardest bosses in the game's like encounter room with explosive barrels and just started the fight by exploding them. The computer nearly melted from the amount of explosion damage going on, but the characters were all safe under this bubble and the fight was over in one hit. So if if you want to kind of do that weird shenanigan-y sort of like break the game, have fun thing, there's a room for that in this as well, which I think is like one of the big successes of Tears of the Kingdom as well. So that like sense of discovery and like breaking things and puzzle solving, I think is one of the doors that have allowed this game to like open up to so many other people. I think the other part of that is the way that it writes these characters so beautifully, the performances of them, and how that's lent itself to a fan base that I think has been really hungering for a video game to give them uh, characters that they can like interplay with and have reactions with in a way that doesn't feel like, say, I'm playing a Sony big budget AAA game where there is a narrative and a story. I'm going to watch Kratos' story here. Whereas in Baldur's Gate 3, it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch Lazelle's story, but I'm also going to like interact with it and be a big player in her in her particular story and have a rich relationship with her with my main character that I don't get in other games. And we probably haven't had to a degree since maybe the golden era of Bioware games. And even then, those feel like shallow puddles compared to what this game achieves. And looking at some of your honourable mentions as well, Adam, it looks like there's there's a few that embody similar sort of similar sort of themes and that sort of thing but also some some games that divert from that as well uh could you please share your honorable mentions for 2023 yeah i'll, I'll zoom through them because there's quite a few and there's one that we're going to talk about in, in more detail later uh but tears of the kingdom is there we've already spoken about that one um octopath traveler 2 just one of the best RPGs of the year. Really great turn-based combat system. Really cool. Um, an improvement on the first one in every regard. Really cool story as well. Great characters. Um, not much more to say about that. Jusant, uh, the rock climbing game from Don't Nod. Um, I got into this one really late. Like this week uh, is when I started playing it. And it's just remarkable. The controls and systems for rock climbing in that game. Plus it's beautiful story and environmental storytelling is wonderful. Super Mario Wonder, probably the best Mario game in years that's 2D. Um, feels like the best 2D Mario game since Super Mario World. It's such a great game and brings a smile to my face. Spider-Man 2, I just thought was uh, like everything that I loved about the first Spider-Man, but more. Um, suffers from a bit of a like dull point in the mid of its game where, I'm w- where I was waiting for the story to pick up, but then, you know, gets there. Um, d- Final Fantasy 16, uh, the combat, and Sid Telemon, Zaddy of the Year. Uh, such a great character, really cool. Uh, he is the coolest, and uh, I, honestly, I have nothing else to say about that game, but I love those two things so much. Oh, the soundtrack for it. Holy crap. The soundtrack is so good. I could listen to this game's music all day long, and its ridiculous boss battles are just... Mm. Articles to read, podcasts to listen to, and videos to watch on sifter.com.au. Well, that's a great jumping off point for our newest member of the Sifter team, Courtney. 
please uh, share with us uh, what you what you do with the, the Sifter team and what your game of 2023 is. I first appeared on Drop Rate with Chris um, reviewing Story of Seasons with Ruby and Ez, which was a great time. Um, and then after that, uh, when Kyle was going to go and have his baby, um, I was invited to help host Walkthrough with Fiona, which has been amazing and I've had the best time. Um, so I'm around, I'm chilling. Uh, but my game of the year is Final Fantasy 16. Um, I, I just think, uh, for me, I think games are the best way to tell a story. And Final Fantasy 16 delivers on a fantastic story. Um, Square Enix, we know they're good at what they do. Like, they have amazing all their games have amazing soundtracks, amazing characters, amazing stories, amazing art. Um, there's, I feel like there's nothing I can really say that would surprise anyone about this game. Um, and I think it's a very, uh, for me, like a very personal game. Like um, at first I thought I wouldn't like it. I'm a huge fan of turn-based combat games. Um, and obviously this game is not that. Um, but having the option to kind of switch from combat focus to story focused was really good for me um and I was kind of able to enjoy it as a visual novel more than anything else um I could just soak in that narrative which was really rich and really good um without being disturbed by the combat too much um in saying that though like Adam mentioned the combat uh, was really, really good. Um, surprisingly, like both the story and cinematic combat and just the kind of general combat where you're fighting mobs, um, you know, walking up to them as Clive and like punching them with your like fire claw and like doing the nothing personnel kid as you like teleport behind them to like kick them in the head was just like very satisfying. Um, and in saying that the cinematic, um, like boss fights just had this immense sense of scale and just felt so real and so tactile. And I really, really loved it. And accompanied with that music, the soundtrack, every time my fiance and I were playing it, every single time we went into combat, I was like, man, the music's so good. Hey. <laughs> Like every single time, I'm like, I know he knows, but I have to tell him, like, because it could be the soundtrack to my life, you know. Um, my big thing with this, obviously, the story and the characters. Uh, the characters are so well written. Like every single character is beautifully written, um, and I'm a big sucker for romance so the romance aspect of it was my favorite and I really liked it um I know there are some people in here who thought that the beach scene was weird uh I thought it was beautiful and I cried <laughs> so who thought the beach scene was weird call them out shame them. name and shame tell us tell us more about the beach scene how about you tell us Mitch because um, <laughs> for me no they it was beautiful they were sitting on the beach 
naked after being in the rain, after the seas have been parted, okay, and <laughs> the seas have been parted, they're all very wet, and Clive is sitting on the beach um, and back to back, oh, my God, and there's a fire and it's just, it sets the mood so well and you know they're in love already but they don't know they're in love. Mitch, just don't. <laughs> Nothing says erotic to me and sensual and romance like being damp, miserable, having nearly drowned, and being surrounded by sand getting into all my crevices. And, and sitting back I to give back. mad props to uh, the two main protagonists of Final Fantasy 16 for, um, yeah, uh, that scene was wild. Uh, my partner w- came home from work and walked in the front door <laughs> while that scene was playing, which is like the curse that I think everyone who plays a video game has, which is Absolutely. like you get the weird romantic sex scene happen when someone walks in the room. Um, what an achievement. I just, I thought it was so tasteful though, because it's like, it's Clive and Jill and like Clive has like rippling muscles and Jill is so like soft and delicate and like you don't see anything, but like it's, you the conversation they have it's very very intimate i really like it. i think it's really nicely done it's better than f***ing a bear in Baldur's gate 3 <laughs> <laughs> i love that juxtaposition of like soft and beautiful and nice and they love each other compared to you can f*** a bear look I'm just going to say that Final Fantasy 16 gave me one of the best scenes of this year, which was uh, Sid chaining up the naked protagonist of this game. Clive is in a basement chained up naked for some reason, and Sid is just smoking a cigarette, staring at him and being like, you're not my type. And then I think that <laughs> single sequence launched a thousand fan fictions. Is this what Final Fantasy will read them all. Sorry, I've not played Final for any Final Fantasy, and it all seems impenetrable at this stage. Is this what Final Fantasy is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is every game has <laughs> that moment that you're like, yep, that's thank you, Square. Um, but the other thing that I really respect this game for is it's not afraid to kill off its characters. Um, Square are really good at bringing you into this world with their characters and then just snuffing out their lives just so nonchalantly and it's so impactful the way they do it is amazing um because you get to know them so well and then and you're you're clawing at your television screen like bring him back now please and i'm there sobbing and my eyes are really puffy and it's two in the morning and i have work tomorrow and i just think that's really beautiful um yeah those are my thoughts on final fantasy 16 <laughs> And some of your honourable mentions, there's there's a, a bit of shared DNA in terms of as, as a real uh, role-playing tilt to, to what you've really enjoyed this year. So tell us a, a bit about uh, what made your honourable mention list. Um, I want to start with Honkai Star Rail. Um, it won Apple's Mobile Game of the Year, deserved. Um, I don't know how... Uh, Hoyoverse do it, but they make such polished games that run on every platform so smoothly. And it feels like, like I play Honkai Star Rail on my mobile. Uh, <laughs> Amelia Gotcha Bucks. Uh, I play it on my mobile and it just runs beautifully. Like my phone can handle it. And then I recently installed it on my PlayStation and it's 
like the exact same. It's gorgeous and all the characters are really big now, which is really cool. I like big characters. Um, but yeah, having a live service game for me is like super important because I watch so much anime, so I don't have as much time to play through story games. So I really like that it's live service, but it gives me the same experience as if I were playing a story game. Courtney, you got to tell us more about that because just about everyone else, I feel like, says, oh, it's a live service. No, that's not for me. But you seem to be the live service, you know, hero, the champion of live service. Um, I'm a slut for live service games. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just, so my big thing is I, I hate feeling like I have to sit and play through a game for hours. Like, I feel like I'm always, like, I'm, busy doing something else I'm reading or I'm writing or I'm working or I'm watching anime or I'm playing with my cat so like for me a live service game is really good because I know that I can go back to it whenever I want and know that I haven't missed very much like even if I didn't play Honkai Star Rail for like a month and I missed an event I know I can still go back and like play where I was up to Um, I like that there are always updates. I like that there's something new because I I always want something new. I'm always searching for the newest thing. So having like new characters come in, being able to roll on like a gacha, even with League of Legends, like seeing there's a new patch and like getting into that. And I think as well, communities are really important for live service games um, because without communities, like you won't have a game. So being able to connect with other people who have the same feeling as me is really really nice like Mitch might think that the sex scene in Final Fantasy 16 is bad but everyone that plays Honkai knows that the new character is good you know why do you hate love Mitch excuse me I want to just defend myself here I never had a problem with the sex scene in Final Fantasy I just wanted to know more about it it was Adam who had the yeah, problem it was- with it <laughs> Adam was just sitting here quietly not know. saying anything I'm just like someone's my scapegoat and I really like it <laughs> My other uh, game of the year. We're gonna we're gonna go all the way back to January, January thirteen, and a big little game called One Piece Odyssey came out. Um, I loved that game. I actually was asked to review it, um, and when I was asked, I was like, "Oh, that's really cool. I love anime, but I actually haven't seen One Piece." So I. I knew about One Piece through like social media and stuff, but I hadn't actually watched it. So I was excited because this was my first real like foray into Oda's world. And my God, I was so impressed. I had so much fun. Um, usually game adaptations of anime are really pretty good generally. Like we have a lot of good Dragon Ball ones and um, Kimetsu no Yaiba, things like that. Um and One Piece Odyssey was also really great. Oda also had uh, oversight on it, which was good. Um, it's a turn-based JRPG, and it takes the player. So it starts in current One Piece, but you go back in time and you play through the main arcs of the original series um, as the characters with their current knowledge, which I think is really cool. Um, and yeah, it just, I started watching One Piece because I enjoyed this game so much and I enjoyed the stories and it was so 
unapologetically itself, which I loved. I love when a game is like, this is what the game is and you're going to play it and you're going to like it. And I'm like, yes, sir. Yeah, I, I wanted to say I was so glad that this is on your list because it's been on my wish list all year long. And I think the reason I was hesitating playing it is because I have no like background with One Piece whatsoever, but it looks so good. The art style is gorgeous. The animations in this game have so much style. The combat system, it looks like, you know, when people rave about how great the Persona series is for feeling like it imbues everything with personality. I looked at a couple of videos of this game when it came out and was like, holy crap every single thing has such a flourish in one piece odyssey um hearing you say that i can basically go in blind has me super excited and i think this is going to be one of those games that i play over over the rest of the summer break maybe please do it's honestly fantastic and even if you don't like watch one piece after it you understand the story just from the game it's so good i think that's the great sign of a a really good adaptation isn't it like you can go in blind that's really great I, I i love that sit down for a chat with your pals in video games you're listening to sifter now i'm going to throw to our dear leader gianni di giovanni executive producer of sifter tell us a little bit about what you do at sifter gianni and your Sort of local, we, we like to claim this country as local for us when, when they succeed, but uh, share with us your game of the year as well, please. Um, so I, I think it's probably fair to say I do a little bit of everything uh, at Sifter. I do editing and scripting and um, planning and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, a lot of the publishing stuff goes on the website is um, stuff that I do. Um, so, you know, kind of what I, my main thing is to try and, you know, be the good backup to all the rest of the great Sifter team to make cool and interesting stuff and well-considered um, games coverage. So my game of the year, we maybe will do a Russell Crowe on this one here and claim it, uh, even though, <laughs> hey, look, my family's from New Zealand, actually, so I'm actually going to claim it a little bit uh, as a bonus for me, um, is Dredge uh, by Black Salt Games. It is a really moody, uh, really fascinating fishing game. And, you know, if you describe it as a fishing game, it, people go, hang on, how can that be a game of the year? But what it does so well is it really intertwines these quite simple uh, mechanics. And uh, in terms of a lot of games, we always talk about risk versus reward. And this is a game where the risk and reward is so clear, but you're always trying to push just a little bit further. And so much of that game is in your head. Um, which is really fascinating. Like it actually um, builds such an incredible mood uh, to it, which is so key to doing what it is. Because on the face of it, it's pretty pretty basic, really. You move a ship around a little 3D ocean, uh, moving through different little biomes and different little island chains, and each one's got its own different selection of, of things that you can uh, catch. Um, and there's weird spooky variants on the fish that you catch. And there's almost like a, a Resident Evil style um, inventory management game as part of that as well. So once you've caught the fish and there's a little mini game to catch those fish perfectly um, with little bonuses as well, can always happen. You then have to try and rearrange the 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 hull of your ship, um, which can be upgraded to try and fit all the fish in. And so you've got time limits as well. So you're trying to fit in as many as you can. You're thinking about what should I drop in order to do these bits and pieces, you know, thinking about the the 
thinking about exactly how you will um, manage that and can I get back somewhere to safely do it or will there be threats that face me as I push into the more scary parts of the world and, you know, have I pushed myself too far and now I'm going to face the consequences of it. It's just incredibly clever. Um, It's such a simple and perfect execution of, of the idea and something that I just really couldn't stop thinking about still real still really can't stop thinking about uh, even when I played it earlier this year um as someone who has thalassophobia uh which is a fear of mine's not really a fear of the ocean but things in the ocean uh large things in the ocean um I went into this game quite scared already but um I was pleasantly surprised at how well the story of this tiny town was told. And it was very satisfying to do the management part. I really enjoyed um, doing the management part, you know, upgrading your ship and selling your things. Um, Villages, I guess, or townspeople requesting different fish and things was really satisfying to me. Um, The bot boss fights if you can even call them that um the big one with the tentacles in the hole at the bottom of the ocean not my cup of tea but the game itself is so well crafted and so charming in the creepiest way that I really recommend it to anyone that likes a management game I think the threat isn't actually as big as it feels in your head a lot of the time. And that I think is what's really clever about the game. Like there's so much of this about how, you know, once you get a bit braver, um, you know, once you can get past the barriers in your mind, um, then it is doable, but it's always challenging enough. There's enough of a, a little tension attached to what you're doing, which means it just becomes trickier. Um, and, you know, you can have a bad run and maybe you've you know, run into a rock or something like that because it mysteriously popped out because you're, you know, <laughs> you've pushed your fear meter too far. Um, and, and and then it kind of, you lose a bunch of the catch that you had and you're like, okay, well, that was the the, the money that I needed to um, buy the next big upgrade or whatever it was. So, you know, there's always that interesting challenge about it. So yeah, it's, it, some of those bits are mood-wise, incredible, impeccable. It's interesting that you talk about like the fear like your own getting over the mental hurdle to play the game because it's really true and I was talking uh with my fiance about a streamer who was playing it and they just went they just did everything they weren't scared of the fear meter they just played and we were so shocked we were like we couldn't bring ourselves to go so far and push it so far because we were so scared and it was like what really is there like it's ourselves stopping us i have a question so do do you think a lot of that a lot of that sense of foreboding and fear does that come from the gameplay or the art style if you reskin this game as like something a bit more pleasant and uh, brighter and like the and reskin the monster as like i don't know something out of a disney movie would it still feel the same or does it come from the gameplay well i think there's like a like a dread that's associated with it. It's very like Cthulhu, um, Lovecraftian sort of pulls on all of those levers as you go through. But actually, and shout out to our interview podcast, Lightmap, which we spoke to the developers of Dredge on. Um, they actually say that there's so much of what they do in that is actually just to 
make you get inside your own head. Like, for example, you'll be going along and sometimes they'll just make a splash go off in like the periphery. Like you won't be able to see it, but you hear it or you'll see a little bit of splash out of the side of the screen. And it does nothing more than that. But at the wrong time, when you've pushed it a bit further and you're out in this, in this spooky darkness and you can barely see and your your ship's fog lamp is flickering because of the whatever it is, like it's just incredible tone. Like it's so, so, so good. And yeah, there are a few things that will actually attack you a bit um, as that, but there's always like a tool set to avoid some of those as well. But they they often have like quite long cooldowns, so you you know you get to a point when you've got an ability which can scare away anything that comes to do it, and you're just like sitting there hovering over the button, and you're like, all right, I got to hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. All right, now I'm gonna hit the button, and, and then it blasts away, and then you're like, okay, I've got about you know 20 seconds more to get back into the harbor, and then I'm I'm safe. So yeah, it's an incredible, incredible, um, incredible vibe. Yeah, I think like. A lot of the game, because you know kind of from the beginning that it's this Lovecraftian kind of horror space, um, and, you know, at the beginning you're sailing this tiny boat on this, like, beautiful sea and the sun is shining and, you know, all you've heard, all you know is, uh, like, tales of this island and the people on it. And I think it gives this sense of... Um, for me, it reminded me quite a lot of the horror of the Australian outback in a way where it's this beautiful landscape and it's bright and there's nature, but what what's there and what's there is whatever's in your head, you know, There's and that's it. There's nothing more than that. And Gianni, along with Dredge, there are a couple of games that made your honourable mention list as well, both of which we've spoken about a fair bit already. So I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on what made your honourable mentions list. Yeah, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, I was tossing up whether or not to put that as my game of the year. Um, and ultimately what it came to is I thought that, you know, so much of the joy of that game was still present in Breath of the Wild as someone who went and actually played Breath of the Wild again all the way through um, before Tears of the Kingdom came out. Um, maybe that was fresher in my mind than a lot of other people, but that's part of the reason why. I was like, there is an, a lot of incredible stuff. They've really improved a lot of things, but so I'd say like 80% of the joy of that game, which is the being able to break whatever you wanted to and, and muck around with all the different things, that was still present in Breath of the Wild. So um, that's an incredible thing. Very few games managed to do that, um, and they were able to do this twice on the Nintendo Switch, which is ancient now and looks incredible and there's no loading screens like at all in this game like you just move like you can jump from the sky into the depths in one clean move and there's no problem at all like to, to do that on the switch isn't actually massively impressive um so that's why it was on there and i just loved building machines um you know, seeing the horrendous war crimes that people were committing, uh, destroying uh, the monsters of Hyrule uh, was always really fascinating. And I always loved building different machines to try and solve uh, things that really ticked the mechanical building part of my brain, which I really, really loved. Um, and the other one for me, yeah, Hi-Fi Rush, and we did mention that as well, like, again, so very surprising um, Felt like not many other things this year that came out um, was incredibly funny and very cool and just beautifully done and just like, yeah, captured that feeling of, you know, so many games say, oh, we want to be like, you know, you're playing in a Saturday morning cartoon or whatever, but like this fully was a Saturday morning cartoon that you were a part of. Um, and it was just done really cleverly. So that's definitely one of the ones um, that I enjoyed this year. But gosh, there was a lot of bloody good games this year. I'll tell you what. That there certainly were. 
articles to read, podcasts to listen to and videos to watch on sifter.com.au. And Chris, you have picked a game uh, that I have been slowly working my way through all the Remedy games that I haven't hit this one yet, but I'm getting up to that point. Your game of the year uh, is something that I think a lot of people will put on their game of the year list. But do you want to tell us just before um, we jump into that, what are the things that you do at Sifter? Certainly. So, yeah, partly through the year, I took on the role of hosting the newly relaunched and refreshed Drop Rate podcast, which is a video game review show uh, because I, I really enjoy in-depth discussions about video games looking at sort of their merit from beyond you know just a commercial or a product sort of perspective looking at them from an artistic perspective and i also really like and am passionate about platforming uh diverse and different voices uh to to ensure that you know we we hear from people from different backgrounds and uh and you know because i think that creates a, a much more interesting sort of criticism or you know critical discussion um and as as part of that one of the games that i spoke about a little bit a little while ago was that of alan wake 2 from remedy and it's it's interesting because i think to fully contextualize why this is my game of the year for 2023 i've got to step back and explain a little bit about my my history with the genre of horror uh so as someone who pretty well has had uh, a lifelong generalized anxiety disorder one genre i just do not mess with is horror uh i just do not stomach it i do not have the constitution for it it's very very difficult for me to sort of sit and watch something that's horror themed or play something that's horror themed because think the the slightest of jump scares deeply unsettle me and and make me very uncomfortable so this year was actually really interesting because i think it represented me sort of stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit because one of the other games i played this year and really enjoyed was the resident evil 4 remake uh, because a lot of people consider resident evil 4 to be the the pinnacle or one of the high points of the resident evil series and it also represented sort of a shift in in the series philosophy jumping from sheer survival horror to something that's a little bit more action horror based um while still retaining a lot of the the sort of the series core and i really really enjoyed it and that there were parts where i struggled with but i got through it and i thought well geez you know if i can get through this maybe there's other sort of horror things that i can uh that i can make my way through so Alan Wake 2 definitely entered my radar very, you know, at a, at a very, very sort of high anticipation levels. Not because I had a great affinity for the, the first Alan Wake game, uh, because I only played that several years after it had, it had came out and thought, yeah, this, this, this was cool. You know, a really interesting sort of mix of action, horror elements with uh, a lot of what I've been told is you know very Stephen King inspirations, uh, which doesn't doesn't necessarily you know sort of translate to to sort of my uh, what I've read because I haven't actually read uh, any Stephen King. Uh, again, you know, horror just being a really big sort of uh, sort of you know gap in my I suppose viewing, watching, reading uh, sort of history. But 
I really enjoyed, and, and Gianni, you'll back me up on this one. I am a, a quantum break truther. I'm quantum break pilled. Absolutely love that game from Remedy. Um, I love anything that's sort of real time, time manipulation, sci-fi sort of stuff. So really enjoyed quantum break. And then further to that, I then really enjoyed Remedy's next game, Control, which sort of was was less of the the time manipulation stuff but still really leaning heavily into bizarre sci-fi alternate dimensions or sort of these these really strange sort of cosmic beings or things that uh, had had this really strange effect on the world around them and Alan Wake 2 from everything I've read as it launched was very much tying a lot of the threads established by the original Alan Wake, uh, by Control, a lot of stuff from Control, and a lot of stuff sort of implicitly from Quantum Break, although technically not from an official perspective because due to contractual stuff, Quantum Break remains a Microsoft property, so Remedy don't actually own the, the IP to that. So they've done some clever things in Alan Wake 2 to sort of bring some of that stuff together. But the the really interesting thing with Alan Wake 2 is that I think it does such a, a great job of bringing together a lot of these, these threads from previous games with this connected universe that Remedy is is establishing and, and sort of putting into, into action. Uh, so there's there's a lot of metatextual narrative going on that that not only brings together the the events, the characters, and the lore from previous games, but it also breaks breaks the fourth wall, not quite in a you know nod and a wink at a camera type of way, but in terms of the craft of writing the craft of storytelling and that the craft of of building a game making films and, and a lot of different creative mediums and it uses a lot of mediums to to do this as well in terms of the way that Alan Wake 2 plays is very much as a sort of survival horror with psychological horror elements where a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of live action filmmaking interspersed with it to help tell this this story as well, which which I think is is really really interesting. And musical cutscenes as well, and all sorts of like strange live action television uh, aspects of it. Uh, Adam, I know that you played a, a lot of this game as well, and one who's didn't particularly love the the horror-y ex- or survival-y sort of aspects of it. Tell me about your experiences with. Um, Oh, I love the horror. I actually just, for me, it was more the gameplay was a little bit clunky, so I dropped it down to story mode. But I know what I'm here for when I play a Remedy game, which is their story, and not so much the gameplay. So that's fine. Um, I, I think for me, what I loved about it so much was, you know, the the first Alan Wake was clearly a love letter to, to Twin Peaks and Stephen King. And, you know, had quirky townspeople. You had Cynthia Weaver, who was the lamp lady. She would always walk around town with a lamp and a lantern. Um, you know, Alan Wake 2... 13 years later is almost responding in a lot of ways to where like like television has gone since then in some ways like it feels like a meditation on twin peaks season three and where david lynch went with twin peaks afterwards it gets a lot more surreal a lot more horror focused and a lot more grim 
Um, but also it's kind of got this touch of Scandi noir about it as well. It's like very like FBI investigating a murder. There's a cult. Um, it feels like one of those like prestige, like uh, European crime dramas at times as well, which is sort of really fascinating to me. But, you know, Remedy being a Finnish developer, Sam uh, Lake being like uh, a Finnish uh, person like there's so much like weird nordic scandy finnish things going on in this game and it's fun to see like the kind of alpine american setting retranslated through the lens of like finnish culture um and then all the links to the various things going on in the remedy connected universe as well is just wonderful like Adi the janitor also being like one of finland's most famed and accomplished actors in cinema there um just kind of playing this absolutely bizarre role in in both this game and control um and who he is as a character and what he represents is so fascinating to me i still haven't kind of worked it out uh and i don't want to work it out i want to be taken along with the mystery of it and i just there's so much to unpack here. The mechanics, the systems at play, the horror is like incredible. This is a game for headphones. Um, there is a sequence uh, midway through this game involving the lamp lady, Cynthia Weaver. I don't want to spoil too much, but damn, was that some of the scariest stuff I've experienced in a game in, in a long time. Um, what a phenomenal treat this was. I must admit, I do not know anything about Alan Wake, the first game or this game. So when it came out, I was like, oh yeah, it sounds very interesting. But then my brother-in-law sent me a clip from the game. I think it was specifically for the song Herald of Darkness, maybe. And he sent me that clip on YouTube of that whole sequence. I was like, what is this? This is amazing. And now it's on my list. And once I finished Breath of the Wild, hopefully not Tears of the Kingdom, sorry, this year definitely going to pick up that game just seeing just how they move from as a character with the performances in the background to the live acting and then straight back in i didn't know what was happening but i'm there for it and i can't wait to pick it up now amazing is indeed the 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 appropriate response to to that performance in in the middle of alan wake um I think that's one of the things that i really like is that yes it's very heavily committed to its its vision, uh, and especially as as Adam pointed out, a lot of the this Finnish culture that's woven throughout um, the, the the setting, but also there are moments where it's extremely camp and leans right into it. It's it's not afraid to just go for something, and I think its sheer commitment to the bit is what makes it land so strongly and this musical section which even even if you you're playing the game i don't i don't think anything you know it, it sort of provides some context for what's going on but there there's still you know not necessarily you know an explicit explanation oh this is why this is a musical there there's sort of this you know little ongoing night tv show you know night talk show that that sort of acts as an interlude between some of the uh, some of the, the chapters um and for one of them it it happens to be a, a full-on rock opera musical which is great to to experience but it also just happens to be an absolutely brilliant song in its own right uh which which is just an absolute joy yeah and when we talk about camp holy crap like 
Saga Anderson is such a fantastic character in that she is basically in like the Hannibal TV show. She's got like a profiling superpower where she could read the minds of people that she's investigating and it's very weird and the way that the game starts playing metatextually with that power is really cool and super odd and camp at times as well where she'll start having conversations with the people that she's imagining what they're thinking about. It's very cool. I also want to give a shout out to Ilmo and Yako, who I think are just two of the best characters in this whole thing. They are the Finnish brothers from the town of Watery that won run Coffee World, which is the coffee amusement park, um, and seem to also have a stake in Odia Diner. I can't figure it out. They're just small town businessmen. Uh, they've got infomercials on all the television channels. Um, the way that they thread into the plot of the game is super fascinating and very cool. Um, and I just feel like every scene they popped up in was was brilliant. I mean, it's yeah, like that ability to thread humor um, with creepiness and horror and have it stick the landing and still feel earnest and emotionally resonant is a hard thing to do. And this is a game with a character like Rosie, which is like another one of those like really Lynchian sort of like oddball characters that just feels completely just winking and nudging at the camera, but completely odd. I, I love it. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I don't have enough to say about this game other than it was such a hard one to not pick this over Baldur's Gate. And you, you mentioned the, the Cynthia Weaver section. Alan Wake 2 was a game I nearly bailed on halfway through uh, because I got to this section where everything ramped up to 11 in terms of this this impeccable sound design with the, the the music creating this unease and tension and the 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 live action visual effects flashing uh you know these these deranged characters right in front of you right in your face at uh rather inopportune moments so there, there was this one section of the game above all else where i was deeply uncomfortable in in physical discomfort really struggling to to get through not because it was you know of poor quality uh of because of how deeply unsettled i was and i'm glad that i i did manage to to push my way through because it, it is one heck of an experience and i think the the overall concept the overall concept obviously we've got saga anderson as a, a sort of dual protagonist alongside uh, the uh, eponymous Alan Wake himself, but specifically Alan Wake, I think that the concept of a a white dude who his, his writing ability is questionable at best, struggling to write, is deeply relatable to me on a personal level. So perhaps I had a very strong connection with the game on, on that level as well. So again, uh, metatextual layers. Alan Wake has it all. I've read your writing. Your writing's great. So you don't have to worry about that one. Um, you've got some honorable mentions in there as well, Chris. Uh, the things that uh, you'll be remembering uh, for years to come to run us through uh, the ones that made a difference for you. Yeah, certainly. So th there's a few here, but one of the games that I really enjoyed playing, and I was thinking probably until I played Alan Wake, that this was going to be my game of the year, and that is Pikmin 4 on, on the Nintendo Switch. Now, I've, I've played the Pikmin game since the GameCube days and really enjoyed the, this sort of action strategy type of gameplay that, that it has with you know these very cute little characters, these little plant-like characters uh, that you 
get to to help you on on your quest to like you know survive this strange planet uh, but it, it's also got some weird sort of horror elements of its own in terms of the, the way that you know the the, the characters or, or the, the sheer horror when you lose a a pikmin is unmatched by many other games it's uh it's quite uh, quite the experience but it's one of the rare games that i actually finished 100 percent because the act of doing so was so enjoyable and intrinsically rewarding that i just had to see all the way through so yeah pikmin 4 was fantastic uh, i did mention resident evil 4 the remake before um i thought that was brilliant as well and not having a history with the resident evil games or having played the original didn't matter it was it was a great game really well paced i thought and the 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 sheer weight and heaviness of your character's movement i thought lent really well into the survival horror uh, elements as well um super mario brothers wonder brilliant you know one of the best 2d platformers i've played ever or in recent years for that matter uh shout out to cosmic wheel of the sisterhood made by i think it's the deconstruct team the same folks behind the red strings club um a really interesting and witchy look at uh femininity uh womanhood and the surprisingly uh turns into a political simulator midway through very interesting uh look at the the politics of a sort of a witch coven um which which was really really interesting um venba uh one of the best games of the year looking at southeast asian culture uh sort of immigrating to a a western country and trying to retain culture through through food and the sort of the family conflict that can arise between trying to hold your culture dear versus the next generation trying to be their own people or trying to sort of fit in with their sort of adopted country uh, and i thought that was really beautifully done um super mario rpg great just a wonderful throwback to the rpgs of the, the super nintendo era no filler as well you can play in about a dozen hours which i thought was great just a nice little palette cleanser and ghost trick the the remaster of ghost trick love that game when it originally came out and i think it's great that it's come out for a new generation to enjoy uh made by the the original director of the ace attorney games just this beautiful puzzle you know really clever puzzle game where the characters in the story just really drive it all the way through and i cannot recommend it highly enough uh so yeah that's uh that's pretty well a summary of my year in gaming Good bloody year of games, I reckon. So many incredible ones. You could pick any of the ones that we've mentioned this year and have something awesome to play with. And because some of them are you know, from the beginning part of the year, you can probably get them on a good deal by the time that they come out now as well. So lots of really exciting things to check out. And such a good mix of uh, AAA titles and indies as well, all like top of their game. You know, the fact that we had uh, Tears of the Kingdom, Spider-Man, all these massive... Uh, highly anticipated titles in one year, along with all these random indies that have come through as well. It's, yeah, what a great year. Great year to be a gamer. Indeed, indeed. And 
So that sums up Sifter's picks of 2023 for Game of the Year. So we're curious to hear what you, the listener, think. Let us know in you know the comments on social media or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to let us know what your favourite game of the year is and what you thought of the discussion. And we'll be sure to shout it out when we resume recording in the new year in 2024. This has been Drop Rate by Sifter, our video game review podcast. Thanks to Brian Fairbanks from Salty Dog Sounds for composing the theme music. Sifter is produced by me, Chris Button, Fiona Bartholomeus, Kyle Paletto, Courtney Barrett, Daniel Ang, and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is senior producer, and Gianni Di Giovanni is our executive producer. If you prefer games coverage in a written form, head to sifter.com.au for articles, interviews, and more. And you can also search your podcast player for our interview show, Lightmap, and our news podcast, Walkthrough. Thank you very much for joining us. See you next time. Hey there, Gianni here on the latest episode of Lightmap. Sifter's interview podcast, Trent Custers from Melbourne's League of Geeks, joins me to share the pretty candid story of how their studio almost came to its end. The thing that I said to Blake, who's the game director on Jump Light Odyssey, and, you know, we've got to remind ourselves is that it literally was just a logic puzzle. Like, we did not have enough money to take one team all the way through till, say, late 2024, which is when, which is the amount of time that Jump Light Odyssey needed to be completed. We've got to put this one game that's already out there that has a bunch of potential and then invested in this other game that, you know, very clearly, because we can see the wish list doesn't have this, and it's always been the case, like Solid Inferno is the weirdo strategy game, right? It was never was never the commercial front runner out of the two. You know, you don't get to pick and choose that actually the decision is made for you. You can get every episode of Lightmap for free on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, or head to our website, sifter.com.au. Mm-hmm.